All right, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is where we will be this morning. Lots to do today. We're in a passage uh, that is very, very dense. Uh, and so we will uh, work our way through it, um, but just be patient and we will get through it. There's a lot of great truths for us to learn here in Romans chapter 8. We're in the middle of a sermon series called Two Ways, a uh, sermon series on life and death. And what we're looking at is that the scriptures seem to put all of humanity on one of two paths or ways or roads. One leads to life and one leads to death. And so we thought in this new year, as we start 2011, that we'd take some time uh, and just kind of assess, take stock of where we are. Where are we in our spiritual walk? Where are we in our lives? Um, what way are we on? What road are we on? And so last week we started uh, in Psalm chapter 1, in the very first song, uh, the book of, of worship songs that we have in our scriptures. And we saw that the psalm was about a blessed man, or, or even like a happy man, someone who is to be envied, someone who has what we want. He has life. He has peace. He has joy. He has meaning. And we learned some things about that happy man, if you remember from last week. Uh, we learned that he avoids rebellion and sin. He avoids disobedience. So he separates himself from the people who, who don't know God and who don't love God uh, and who participate in, in wicked things. And so we saw he doesn't listen to the advice of the sinners. He doesn't walk in the way of the wicked. He doesn't sit in the seat of the scoffers. But instead, this happy man, this blessed man, he meditates on the law day and night. He, he takes what God has revealed, God's instruction, and he thinks about it. We, we said last week, he lets his imagination be shaped by God's scriptures. So that when he is in the world, when he is making choices, when he is facing difficulties, he has the scriptures, God's law, God's revelation in his mind. And his mind then controls his actions and his thoughts and his attitudes. Uh, the song goes on to say that this blessed man, this happy man, he's like a tree. He's like a tree that's planted by water. And so he's not dependent on much externally. He's not dependent on the rain. I mean, he's got a source of life right there. And his, his fruit is born in season. His leaf doesn't die. He, he's a prosperous tree. He has life. And the wicked is like chaff. It's like this dry, brittle, weightless casing that just blows away in the wind. It's temporal. It's worthless. And then the psalm ends by saying, even though it might not always look like that here and now, the way of the wicked will end, will perish. The wicked can't stand in the judgment. But the way of the righteous, he knows it. He loves it. He calls it his own. And so we, we saw these kind of two ways, these two paths, the wicked and the righteous. One uh, looks at God and looks at his revelation and says, I'll do what I want to do. And the scriptures say, that will lead to death. And then the other says, I'll follow you. I'll let what you said and what you revealed work powerfully inside of who I am and, and have a life that's changed because of it. And that leads to life. Now there's a problem with that. We, we asked last week, which way are we on? What choices are we making? The problem is that it's not a simple choice all the time. The choice between life or death is not just a simple choice as if uh, you and I were on some kind of neutral playing ground. Uh, so for instance, like I always think it's funny when like someone presents the gospel to like an eight-year-old, like to a little kid, and uh, the choice is between uh, staying with mommy and daddy in heaven or going to uh, a lake of fire for all of eternity. I mean, the kid's going to choose staying with mom and dad in heaven. Like, that's not a choice. Like, if the choice was simply between life or death, I think we would all choose life. But the scriptures say, and, and we experience, very few people choose life. Very few people go the way of the scriptures, go the way laid out by God. 
The reason for this is because we're not on a neutral playing field. We're not uh, just on a level uh, surface. We're, I mean, there's, there's darkness all around us. So there's temptations without. And if we're honest, sometimes there's darkness inside of us. Is there not? The choice between good and evil, between life and death, is not just a simple choice. There's other powers at work that are keeping us from making the right choice. There's temptations without and within. One of my favorite quotes is that the line between good and evil is not between us and them, or us and something outside of us, but it runs down the middle of each of us. I mean, if we're honest, when we try to do what's right, I mean, sometimes we can't do it. Sometimes there's, for whatever reason, things outside of us or things inside of us that war against where we know is life, what we know is right. And now this is the problem that's driving Paul crazy in Romans chapter 7. He says, I know what to do. I know what's right. I know what the law says. In fact, I want to do that, but I can't. And so he says things like, I I don't do what I want to do. What I do, I don't want to do. He says, the evil that I do is is what I don't desire. I, I want to do right, he says, but evil lies close at hand. He says, he ends the chapter though in, in Romans 7 after this real schizophrenic kind of frantic, I, I don't know what's happening, I can't do what's right, and he ends it with, but thanks be to God, who in Jesus provides a way out. And then Romans 8 starts with that way out. With the gift that God has given you and I to allow us to go down the right way, the right path. The one that leads to life. So look in Romans 8. We'll pick it up in chapter, in verse 1 here. Romans 8, verse 1. Paul says this. Listen. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This is Paul's main point here. He's going to be explaining this first sentence for the rest of the chapter. In fact, chapter 8 will end with what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's kind of this circle that he encloses it with. There's no condemnation and what can separate us from Christ's love. If you look in your text uh, in chapter 8, these first seven verses here, you'll see the word for. Not the the number, but the word for uh, lots of times. In verse 2, 4. Verse 3, 4. Verse 5, 4. Verse 6, 4. Verse 7, 4. This is Paul explaining what he's just said. There's no condemnation because, 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 because. But he starts off by saying, to those who are in Christ, there's no condemnation. The verdict of not guilty does not stand on them. It's not there. It doesn't exist. A lot of people have said this verse might be the heart of the gospel. This phrase, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, it's a term that Paul uses uh, very often to describe our union with Christ. That somehow, mystically, spiritually, you and I have been put with Christ. We've been united with Christ so that we share in His victory. We share in His person. We share in His work. It's, in a sense, our status as believers. It's who we are as followers of Jesus. You and I exist in Christ. And he says, for those of us who exist in Christ, there's no condemnation. I mean, just such a beautiful, powerful statement. There's no condemnation. God looks at us and we're forgiven. There's no guilt on you or I. Even though there's darkness all around us, there's darkness in our past. And if we're honest, there's darkness inside of us. 
But in Christ, there's no condemnation. This, this no condemnation, I think it includes more than just being forgiven of your sin. Um, because Romans 1 would say that God's wrath is revealed. That, that's already revealed. God has revealed, He's manifested, He's already let loose His wrath. And you know what Romans 1 says His wrath is? Three times, God gave them up to do what they want to do. God gave them up to do what they want to do. God gave them up to do what they want to do. Seems like Paul thinks maybe the worst thing that God could do is let you go play with your sin. It's like a, a father who, whose child wants to run into the freeway. The, the most evil, wicked thing the father could do is say, I don't care. Run into the freeway. What, see what happens when you stand there. God, with His wrath, putting a guilty verdict on humanity, says, go see what happens when you play with sin. James would say, sin, when it's fully grown, leads to death. That's what it does. That's what happens. It dehumanizes. It, it brings judgment. It brings punishment. So, no condemnation. A, a not guilty verdict on your life and on my life means more than just being free from the penalty of sin, but it means that you and I are freed from a life of sin. It means that we're taken out of slavery to sin. Because here's the important truth that you've got to understand this morning. If you are trapped in sin, I mean just living a life of sin, you're still under God's wrath according to the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures, if you're not guilty, God won't let you play in sin. He just won't let you. Now, will you sin and fall occasionally? Will you struggle with sin? Yes, you will. We'll, we'll see about that. But you're free. You're fundamentally taken out of that brain. And you're no longer in slavery. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This truth, this statement here at the beginning of Romans 8, should make you and I, Christians, people of God, really the, the boldest people around. I mean, how bold are you when you can face the world going, there's no condemnation for me? No matter what people think, no matter what circumstances I encounter, no matter what I fail at, no matter what I do good, there's no condemnation for me. I'm in Christ. My identity is found in Him. My forgiveness and freedom is found in Him. And so he's going to start explaining this with these fours. In, in verse 2 he says, For because the law of the Spirit of life so, so law, a spirit law, a life law, has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So we're in Christ, we share in some sort of victory, and then we're freed. The spirit takes us out of sin and death. Well, in verse 3, he's going to unpack this statement a little bit more. So look in verse 3 here. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Okay, we've got to unpack this. This is probably the densest part of this passage here. He says that God has now done what the law could not do. The implication here is that the law wanted to do it. The law tried to do it, but it wasn't able to. Now, what was the law given for? What, what is it trying to do? What was it meant for? Um, in the Western kind of evangelical Christianity, since the Reformation, we've misunderstood the law. 
as some sort of evil, white-knuckle way to earn our salvation. The, the Hebrews, the truth is, they love the law. I mean, we talk about this all the time. They wrote love songs about the law, Psalm 119. They loved it. They saw it as God <coughs> reaching down and saying, this is how you should live. And so the example always uses murder. The Ten Commandments aren't these arbitrary rules. It's God saying life's better if you don't murder each other. Like, it works better. Let me lead you into life. You see this played out all the time. When you tell your kids, it's hot outside, when you tell your kids, drink water. You're not saying that because you know they hate water and you want to see them suffer. You're saying that because you're going to get sick if you don't drink water. I know better. Let me lead you into life. And, and the Hebrews understood this is what God was doing with the law. We see throughout the Old Testament, the law was given to give life, to lead God's people into life. If you watch the narrative in the Old Testament, it's real critical, real key that you see the order here. God's people are led out of Egypt. So the Hebrew version of salvation, they're freed, they're liberated. And then they're given the law to lead them into the promised land. To show them, this is how you now live as my people. As those who have been given grace. As those who have been saved. So throughout the Old Testament, I think some people are surprised to see passages where grace is so in your face. Because we, we've been trained to think that the, the Hebrews didn't know about grace. They knew about grace. Free grace. Deuteronomy 7 says, I didn't pick you for anything of your own. You weren't strong. You weren't powerful. You didn't impress me. I saved you because I am who I am. And then he gives them the law and says, now this is how you should live. This is where life will be found. Uh, I'll read for you from Deuteronomy 30. This is uh, Moses' farewell speech. Uh, his farewell sermon right before he dies. Uh, and he has, it's a really long speech. He's laid out the law for them. He's reminded them, this is how you should live. And then he says this in verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today, you shall surely perish. He comes to him and says... If you do what I've told you to do, it will lead you right into life, into goodness. But if you go the other way, if you go on the other path, it's going to end in death. It's going to end in bad things. Let me lead you into goodness. And so Paul, even in Romans 7 here, uh, Romans 7, you can flip just one page earlier. Uh, we'll pick up in verse 9. It says this about the law. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life. Did you hear that? The commandment that promised life. This was the promise held out by the law. If you do this, you will find life. Proved to be death to me. We'll talk about that in a minute. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Listen, so the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law was, was meant to give life. It was God saying, this is where life is found. But there was a problem. The law was frustrated. It was stopped short of accomplishing what it wanted to accomplish. The problem was us. The problem is that you and I, God's people, are part of the problem. We find sin, flesh. This is Paul's word for sinful desires, for the sinful part of creation, flesh. 
It's within us. He says the law could not do it because it was what? Weakened by the flesh. The law promised life, but it could not bring us to life. It was weakened by um, our shortcomings. You see, what happens is that the law, instead of giving life, now only serves to do two things. One, to highlight that we're enslaved. To highlight that we are desperately sinners, wicked people. And then two, to say, and there's a just punishment coming for them. Instead of of giving life, now it, it accomplishes those two things. But, Paul says, God has accomplished what the law could not do. I'll give you an example of this before we continue. When I was in high school, before I was a Christian, um, I was just absolutely sold in slavery and lust. So it was just completely owned, as I think a lot of of teenage guys are. Um, And so I am living my own way. Uh, just completely, I mean, completely sold. Um, and But I'm going to a, a private school, and I'm going to a church every now and then in the area, and I'm hearing lust is bad. I mean, here's the commandment. Don't lust. Don't let your sexual desires control you. Life's not found there. Only bad things are found there. And so even if I agreed with that, and even if I said that's right, on my own, I couldn't do anything about it. I mean, I was sold. I was a slave. All that commandment really would do in my life is say two things. He can't control himself. And there's a punishment coming for him. He's on the wrong path. And I couldn't get off of it. It wasn't a choice between life or death. I had chosen death. And I needed God to accomplish what just knowledge, what just the commandment couldn't. And Paul says, he did. God did what the law could not do, as it was weakened by the flesh. Look at how he did it. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. You might have a, a footnote there that brings you down to the bottom of the page. It says, or and as, and as a sin offering. Um, and then he can stem sin in the flesh. So his son comes. He is a sin offering. He comes for sin. He dies uh, and bears the punishment for your sin and for my sin, buying us forgiveness. And then he condemns sin. But on the cross, what he's saying here is that sin itself was condemned. So, whereas 8.1 starts with, you and I aren't condemned, we see that on the cross, sin was condemned. Whose sin? Our sin. It was executed. It was judged. It was dealt with. Christ on the cross does two things. He, one, forgives us of our sin. And then he, two, wins a victory over sin. A fundamental, deep reality victory was won over sin, over evil, on the cross. And it does this. It opens up a new age, a new era. This is what's happening with the resurrection. New creation. This is a new time in humanity. A time when sin has been defeated. And now Christ's people who share in His victory, in Christ, they're freed from their sin. And they're given the Holy Spirit here. And the Holy Spirit is their helper, as their guider, as their counselor. He now leads them in truth. He now leads them in the right way to live. He now leads them into life. God is accomplishing what the law couldn't do. In verse 4, he says this, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He says the law is fulfilled in you and I as we have the Spirit, as we walk in this new life with the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. 
This is all throughout um, the New Testament. I'll show you a couple places in Romans. If you go to Romans 3, verse 31, Paul says this, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we now uphold the law. In Romans 10, verse 4, Paul says this, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now listen, this is an awful translation. Awful, awful, awful translation. The word here is telos. He's the goal of the law. Almost nowhere in the New Testament is this word translated end. But someone made a theological decision to tell you it's the end. But that doesn't match with what Jesus said. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Paul says we don't overthrow the law. We uphold it. Here in Romans 10, he says Christ is the goal of the law. He's what the law was pointing towards this whole time. And look in Romans 13. Romans 13, verse 8. Oh, no one anything except in except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. <coughs> in Christ, in the spirit love that you and I have, we're seeing the law fulfilled. What the law was pointing to is now possible, this way of life through the gift of Jesus. So Paul says, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Why? Because on the cross, he bought forgiveness for you and I, And on the cross, he freed us from sin. Through the Holy Spirit working out in our lives, we've been taken out of slavery. We have the promise that we're not owned by temptation and sin anymore. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. This assurance, I mean, this is such a beautiful promise of assurance is followed by a powerful, robust view of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And so Paul would say, now you and I walk according to the Spirit as opposed to walking according to the flesh, the way we used to live, the way most of the world lives. Now these two ways, wicked and righteous, Paul redefines them as in the Spirit and in the flesh. And look what he says about the two ways here in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, to live according to the flesh, he says, uh, those people would set their minds according to the flesh. They would be consumed by sinful desires. I mean, these are the people he was talking about in Psalm 1, who, who listen to what the world says about the, the life and, and the choices we should make, who, who behave like the world says we should behave, who belong, whose identity is found up in those who don't love God and who don't follow God. He says those, they live according to the flesh. Their mind is set on the things of the flesh. And he says that path ends in death. It ends in death. Sin, when it's fully grown, leads to death. He says it, it can't submit. It doesn't please God. But he says in the opposite, those who live according to the Spirit live a life directed by the Holy Spirit. It's a life that has the Holy Spirit of God, who will see the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, pulsing inside of you and I, directing us, guiding us, moving in us. Now here's... What's scary about this, I think that you can cognitively claim belief in Christ, but still live according to the flesh. Like, you tracking with me? Like, I think you could say, I'm a Christian, 
But your mind is set on the flesh. Your life is lived according to the flesh. Paul says, don't fool yourself here. Those who have no condemnation are those who have been taken out of that world by the Holy Spirit, who live their lives according to the Holy Spirit. Because again, if we go back, remember, if you are a slave to sin, Paul says, You're, what kind of grace is that? What kind of victory is that? He says, it's the wrath of God. How could you claim that there's no condemnation on you? Paul says, no, in the gospel, on the cross, we have the promise that we won't be slaves. That we're forgiven and freed. Now, do we struggle? Yes, we struggle mightily. We'll see this again later on. He's going to say, put to death those deeds that still haunt you. Because they do. But he says, those who walk according to the Spirit find life and find peace. God has, through a gift, through grace, enabled us to get on the right way. Enabled us to go down the right path that leads to life and leads to peace. Look in verse 9 here. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. (coughs) He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. He's talking to the Roman Christians here, and he says, on this map that I've drawn with these two forms of humanity, you're the Spirit people. You who have followed Christ, you who have found grace in the cross, you who have been born again through the Spirit, you are the Spirit people that are on the path to life and to peace. And he says, life is promised to you, both now and forever. He says the same, I mean, listen to this. The same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you and I. Like, have you thought through that verse? Like, that's a verse to think on and to write on and to pray on. The Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is inside of you and I. He says, if we belong to Christ. So this is definitely not a defeatist attitude. Like, this is not a woe is me. This again should make Christians the boldest of people. As we go out into dark places, as we go face our past, as we face the temptations of the weak, the Spirit of Christ dwells inside of us. As we face people in opposition and struggles, the Spirit of Christ dwells inside of us. The same Spirit who raised Him from the dead Here's the the so what. Here's the application Paul draws from this. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He says, so so what? The, The big application here is that you and I should not live according to the flesh. We should make everyday choices, big and small, intentional living to walk by the Spirit. You, the, the Spirit, walking by the Spirit is an interesting thing because there's not like a good formula for it, right? There's not an equation that you can figure out and, and then all of a sudden you're walking in the Spirit. Um, Ephesians would say, they, it would use the metaphor of um, sailing. 
and, and the Spirit is the wind, and you've got to kind of catch the, the wind, the Spirit, in your sail. And so you position yourself to let the Spirit move inside of you. I think that's a great analogy. How do you walk in the Spirit? Where you stand where the Spirit blows. You position yourself to let the Spirit move you. I think there, there are lots of ways to do this, but Scripture, I mean, spending time in the Scriptures, prayer, having a life saturated in prayer, community, believers all around you, in your life, who know you and love you and can challenge you. And the Spirit blows and, and we move. He says, put to death the deeds of the body, the deeds of the flesh. This is not a passive lifestyle. This is a lifestyle that recognizes what sin is. That it leads to death. And so, our response? Kill it. If you see it, if you sense it, if you know it's there, kill it. This is definitely not a call for Christians to be silent and slowly burn out by themselves. I mean, this is why I'm always pleading with you to get help if you're struggling. Get help. Talk to somebody. Go see a professional. Get help. If you know that there's that sin there, Scripture says, put it to death. Kill it or it's going to kill you. This is not a game we're playing, Paul says. I mean, this is not just something for fun. This is not a hobby. The choice is life or death. And Paul says, as spirit people make the everyday small but important choices to choose life. To walk according to the spirit. To put to death the deeds of the flesh. He says, we have these two paths laid out in front of us. Life, death. And through God's grace, his gift, his victory on the cross... We're given the power to stand forgiven so that when we fall, <coughs> Luther says, we look at the devil and say, he paid for it. Luther says, we're bold. His grace never, it's infinite. It doesn't run out. There's no condemnation. And when we're haunted, when we're, I mean, when we're stalked by those sins, by those struggles, we say there's no condemnation. You've been given the Spirit. You have been condemned in the death of Christ. And I share in the victory over you. 2011 is a year where you and I as Christians, as God's people, need to ever increasingly learn how to walk in the Spirit. Where we need to learn how to make choices. How to take small, intentional steps toward life and away from death. I think this, this text tells us to, to one, worship and celebrate and cherish who Christ is and what he's done for us. And then two, to assess where our lives are going. Are we living as spirit people? Have we understood the victory that's been won on the cross? Is God doing in our lives what the law could not do because of our flesh? Are we headed toward death? Are we headed toward life? In peace. What steps can we take in 2011? I'll wrap it up with a story today. Um, this summer, uh, I was going to Kenya. And uh, it's a long flight to Kenya. And in my past, I've had uh, panic disorder and anxiety stuff. And so I wanted to, I mean, it just doesn't sound like a good idea to get a panic attack on an eight-hour flight. Uh, just kind of stuck up there. Um, it's not good for you. It's not good for the people around you. 
so I tried, uh, I didn't try, I got my hands on uh, some anti-anxiety medicine, the same stuff I had in high school uh, that I kind of had a dependency problem on um, and would self-medicate. And so I would get real depressed in high school uh, and then self-medicate with this, this medicine. Um, and, and God saved me, brought me out of all of that. Um, but I, I got my hands on a couple of them um, from my doctor just to, to be safe, to take to, to on the plane with me. Um, but for whatever reason, I, I didn't take them. I decided it wasn't worth the hassle. You know, I'll be okay. I haven't had a panic attack in years. I'll be fine. So I left them. Uh, there was a bag of, of just a handful of them on my desk at home. And, and so I got back from the trip. Uh, and was just, I mean, done. Uh, I had been running and running and running and running all day every day. Uh, I had jet lag. I got back. I was just laid out in bed for like four days. Uh, and I was kind of having that post-trip depression uh, where you get back to real life. And it's just not as exciting as your trip. Um, uh, and, and so I was... In bed for four days, just sleeping and, and, and depressed. And uh, on that fourth day, I, I realized, I mean, I was, I was real depressed that day. And I realized that there's there that bag on my desk. And, uh, and that, that sin came back haunting, stalking me. Going, go, go medicate. No, 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 no. You, you can stop this time. Just take a few. And so I wish I could say, like, I, I prayed, right? And I like read the Bible, and Jesus spoke to me, and was like, my son, get up. Um, but that's not what happened. I, I laid there, and I struggled. And I got up, and I, I went, and I got the bag, and I, I put it down the toilet, and I flushed it. And now listen, it's not because I'm strong. That's the, that's the point. I wasn't strong. I was weak. I was a miserable, pathetic person who's been down that path before, and who's still considering it. But what what's happening is that there's no condemnation for me. I'm not allowed to do that anymore. He doesn't let me. He loves me too much. The Spirit's in my life. The Spirit that's leading me out of death. That's putting me on the path to life. It's His victory. It's His promise to me. It's His promise to you. 2011, I think, could be a great year for us if we appropriate, if we make real what Christ has done in our lives, if we learn through big things and small things to live according to the Spirit, to put to death the deeds of old, to find our life and our joy in Christ and Christ alone. If we could say in 2011, in our prayers, that we'd be able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 16 that I have no good apart from you. We could live, I mean, if we could live lives like that, there's no good apart from you. Everything calls to me. And the sinful things call to me and say, there's good here, there's life here. If we could learn that it's not there, but it's with God. That's my prayer, that's my hope. Well, you see, it's not a simple choice between life or death, but the good news of the gospel is that Christ has gifted graced us. He has bought us with a price. He has won a victory. And the Holy Spirit is working that victory out to this day in the hearts and minds of men and women and children all around the world. Maybe realize His work. Maybe celebrate it. Maybe join Him. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank You for our time. Once again, I, I pray um, that through your word, dense passages like this, um, as you would speak and encourage and challenge, I pray that we would um, be matured and grown up 
uh, I pray that we'd be able to put away um, the things of old and find life and newness and goodness in you and in your commands. Pray that when you tell us to, to give something up or you tell us to go here and do this, that we wouldn't see that as a hassle, but we'd see that as life. We'd see that as your invitation into what is good and right and holy. We love you, Father. Be with us. Give us strength. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.